0: Cindy Shupak is a writer, executive producer, and director who studied journalism at Northwestern University. She has worked on iconic television series such as Sex and the City and Modern Family, with her episodes of the former nominated for both Writers Guild and Emmy Awards. Her first feature, Otherhood, starring Angela Bassett, Felicity Huffman, and Patricia Arquette, was released on Netflix in August of 2019. Shupak is the author of New York Times bestseller, The Between Boyfriends Book, a collection of cautiously hopeful essays, and has written for magazines including Glamour and Oh! The Oprah Magazine.
1: Cindy Shupak, welcome to The Creative Process thank you so you're a writer as many people know for you know celebrated television shows uh, sex in the city modern family now with uh, your film otherhood uh, you are a writer director uh, tell us a little bit um, how that came about and and what uh, drew you to to pass into directing
2: well it was a long journey because i think i've been writing television now I want to say like 25 years, which makes me feel so old. I never really had the directing bug. I always loved writing and I like being behind the scenes and in television, writers have so much control anyway to rise up the ranks and run the show and hire the directors. So I mostly had... Just great collaborations with directors, and especially on Sex in the City we had. Really filmic, talented directors, and it was like one book, let me go for three, I mm-hmm. felt, collaborating with the director. But there was a film that I was hired to rewrite. At the time, it was called Whatever Makes You Happy that became Otherhood. Yeah, and it was a book called Whatever Makes You Happy by William Sutcliffe. And Mark Andrus had done the first adaptation, which I loved. So when I was hired to rewrite it, I thought, why are they... Messing with this, I just want to like protect what I love about it. And Mark Anderson has won an Oscar for as good as it gets. He's yeah. a good screenwriter. So I guess I took that job and then I kept thinking some director is going to make this into a great movie and then years passed and it went into turnaround and finally the producer, Kathy Shulman, who was president of Women in Film, so she's really pro, female, take the reins, lean in. She encouraged me to think about directing it and so this was about five years worked on getting it set up with independent financing and human financing, and finally Netflix came along and was the right place to do this kind of movie. And in the process, at first point, um, I named it Otherhood to be like the stage after Motherhood mm-hmm. because it's about women and their adult sons. And Kathy had just produced Bad Moms, which was kind of a phase of life, relatable phase of life movie for women, and she felt mm-hmm. like if we could kind of capture what the movie was always about, but... That better it was better for marketing. Angela Bassett signed on, and once she signed on, then we got Patricia cat, and we finally filmed it in New York, and then it finally aired on Netflix. And it was just a long journey, <laughs> but yes. I really loved directing. I mean, I liked at first, I liked the idea of being the person who could make it happen, like once the puzzle that would just ensure it would get made. Mm-hmm. And at other times, I. I resented being that person because I just wanted someone else to move it forward and call me when it was ready to go, you know.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> but um, but in the end, I loved being able to control uh, and collaborate. Really, it's just a giant collaboration. Mm-hmm. But hire people that I loved or that I people I knew loved. You know, I just kind of looked for that word every time we heard a department head looking for a recommendation. Like, I love this art director. And it was just a very collaborative process with the actors and every department had, and with, with New York, I have to say, because I always have a soft, soft in New York. So it just turned out to be a great experience. and you kind wonder why I writing so wrong.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And so what aspects did you particularly enjoy exploring that perhaps, you know, in, uh, when, you're, when you're writing, you're not involved maybe as much with the, the editing of the, the footage or, you know, visual aspects, or I, I don't know. Um, soundtrack and those kind of things.
2: Yeah, I I mean, if you're a Mm showrunner, you are involved in a lot of that, and even as a high-level producer on a television show, you're involved in casting and I think because it's a one off you don't have to figure out how to keep doing it over and over because in television you're sort of in all three stages at once. You're doing pre production and casting and writing and then you start filming and so you're filming and then you're doing post production which is editing and music and you just can't be all those places at once or give it your full attention mm. when that train is moving. <laughs> yeah. So you have to rely on everybody else and you know, sort of hope for the best. But in this film, I felt like I was just there for every step of the process. And we had Pat Fields, We did costumes on Sex in the City, and I know I worked with her. And I had people I really respected who had similar visions and at a certain point, we had sort of a shorthand. So I didn't have to dictate everything. I could just trust them, and they understood and were seeing the same movie I was seeing. So it was just sort of a pleasure to not have anything trip you up. Because when I've been a writer on set of shows I've written... Even if I'm the creator, but also as just a writer of an episode, there's almost always something that you wish was different, or the set isn't exactly as you wished, with costumes, or the casting, or there's some aspect that isn't quite feeling like you wish it was, and I just found in this film it was kind of crazy to get to set and have it be exactly the location I had helped choose, and I had designed the blocking of the scene to be there, and then when the actors had that better ideas, we could shift it, and we could change things on the spot if we needed to. It just felt like a great... Yes, that you would like plan this perfect dinner party with everything you wanted, all the food you wanted, the exact guests you wanted, the exact space you wanted, and then you just had to sort of enjoy the dinner.
1: Yeah, and it's nice to have that breathing room. And I also uh, liked the the whole, um, it felt like there was a friendship between, the, we should say that the story uh, revolves primarily around those three actresses. You mentioned their characters who are three mothers who have known each other since their children were very young, right? So, tell, so it's about their friendships, and it's also about the... Just tell us, uh, you know, unwrap the story for us.
2: It's three mothers whose sons grew up together, which I relate to because I have a young kid now, and the mothers of the kids her age are really like my lifeline because they understand all the stages. So mm-hmm. These are mothers who met when their three sons were young, and they've stayed friends over the years, and now their sons are 30
0: mm-hmm. and have
2: all moved to New York. They live in the The sons have all moved to New York and are sort of close, but not as close. They all have their own lives. And the mothers are getting together on Mother's Day, which has been a tradition for them. And they just realize, finally admit to each other, that they feel completely marginalized and forgotten. And they decide to go to New York and surprise their sons and make them love them again. It's really a story of these women. There's a line that Angela Bassett says to her son where she says, you know who you are without me. I need to figure out who I am without you. It's the essence of the movie that these women, although they're blaming their sons, they're trying to sort of figure out who they are after being mothers for so long and wives. And they're at this stage in life which, even though my child is so young because I was late to the game, a lot of women I know are in where we're like 50 and still have so much to do and want to say and want to experience it. and life is not over and that I think it used to be, you know, you grew up, got married, had a kid, you know, maybe retired and then died or maybe mm-hmm. a short emptiness period. but now there's sort of this whole other quarter of life and how do we fill it and who are we and who are friends and how to re-examine. It so it's really about that stage of adulthood after motherhood.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting thinking about the other um, shows uh, you and other stories that you've been involved with, and it's really about primarily a lot of women, but of course you know strong male characters as well who are really questioning some of these roles. And it's it feels like it can feel like sometimes that our previous generations just knew what it was about, or they didn't ask what it was about. What everyone was expected to know, <laughs> even if they didn't know, they didn't right. say anything.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that. I feel like my
2: role, and I wrote a relationship column yes. in magazines, I've written a couple of books of essays, yeah. one about dating, a couple of and one about marriage and fertility. Yeah, I feel like without really thinking about it, I've always questioned these things or at the very least wanted to commiserate, like wanted to talk about something I felt like people we weren't talking about yet, but were feeling, uh-huh. especially women, and trying to dissect it and just make women feel less alone in these journeys
1: yeah it's and it's important to it's important to have the strength to be vulnerable right for sure and to show that um just to show that we don't have all the answers
2: i mean the biggest i guess creative issue i i had writing about women's issues was when i had a column for glamour Mm -hmm. originally about dating and they always wanted me to have, it, have advice at the end or a takeaway, tell mm-hmm. women what to do. And I felt like, I don't know, you know, if I do, I'm going to be writing this column on Saturday night. So I felt like, I feel like that, I don't want to be prescriptive and say this is how you do it. And I think I maybe, that's why I like ensembles with male friends, because even on Sex in the City, you know, Carrie would ask the question and then they could have four points of view. And there was never like a right answer. It was just the of all the ways these you know, things can make you feel. So. That, that vulnerability that you don't know, I mean, is the trying to figure it out, is the impossible. To figure out what's right for you, that's the vulnerable basically, because you don't have a definite,
1: you know, answer, but that's what's right for you. Yeah, I think that is. I think that they we're all figuring that out, that there there isn't, or the answer can change for different periods of our life, right? And. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's nice. I do really believe, I mean, part of this project, too, but, but you know, between also between families, it's about, you know, parents teaching and and the and, and larger extended families, you know, parents teaching their children and children teaching their parents um, at different stages. And, um I think that that's what's nice about it is that we don't know and we don't have all the answers and I think that for those of us who have chosen the arts particularly, <laughs> it's kind of like a profession that hasn't, it's not, it's not predictable and it's about,
2: yeah. Yeah, it makes me always, my dad was an accountant and I, I love <laughs> like balancing my checkbook or, you know, things that just have a solid, you're done. Check this off your to-do list or mm-hmm. find the total and it all balances and you're done as opposed to writing where you to sort of keep going.
1: Yeah, but I think that's the nice thing too, because you're always going it's a life of surprise. So um mm-hmm. that was another great line. Um it was about anti aging in the film. It was like anti aging is death.
2: Yeah, why is everyone so anti aging? You know what's anti aging? Death. <laughs> yeah. Um so. Yeah, you know, that's funny. That that line <laughs> is gonna sound very woo woo with something, but um, I had a friend Padma who she was like a talent um she worked for HBO when I worked at Sex the City and mm-hmm. HBO considered talent, not just the actors, but the writers and producers. So she was like the person who helped us with all our getting to award shows and planning and submitting mm-hmm. things. But then she became a writer and then yeah. she died very young at like oh. 30 of oh. a rare cancer. And we used to always go um, to yoga together on Sundays and i just and me and her and two other girls and we would go to yoga and we would go and talk about our lives and after she died i was in yoga one day and i felt like i could still hear her because she was very funny and wise and spiritual Mm -hmm. she we were doing that anti-aging pose where you have your legs in the air (laughs)
0: Uh
2: and i felt like i could hear her say why is everyone anti-aging you know what's anti-aging death." like it stuck with me it was something i never thought of that line. And I also remember kind of interrogating that and saying
0: to myself
2: or her, I was like, okay, so am I hearing you or do I just know what you would say and she said or thought or I thought? What does it matter? And I think sometimes when you like know someone and love them enough, you can still hear them talking to you, whether they truly are or whether you just know their love and spirit enough, you know what they might say. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I always wanted to use that line. (laughs)
1: I'm happy to pick that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's nice. It's nice when you can reach that shorthand with a partner with a friend when you can hear them or you can finish their thoughts for them to, to or their um, their sentences for them. It's a, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing that you had that, and I'm sorry that your friendship was, you know, what happened. Um, yeah. But it's nice. I think that that's the thing, too, that they always live, live on in us. And then she's worked, you work together, and so you, have, you, can, you can watch the, part, you know, the episodes that you worked on together, and uh, that brings them back as well.
2: It's funny you say that finish each other's sentences, because I think I'm in a place where I'm wondering, is that good, or is it better to have someone always um, say something insightful that you maybe wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought of? I mean, there's the finishing each other's sentences where you both think so alike, like the same movies, you could mention something and I'll say,
0: oh, yeah, or the
2: wreck of a song, sings. There's that, and then there's just some kind of niceness, too, when you're with people who, you know, are going to challenge you to say something that, that you wouldn't have ever thought
1: of. Well, I think, I think it's both. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, as an artist, that you wouldn't pick, and I know that you've uh, well, you wrote about it in your second book as well. You've, you've met the one, it wasn't the first one, it was the second one, but um, so I'm sure you wouldn't pick someone who. It was so predictable, because that's, that's no fun for an artist. But I think it's, a, it's well, actually well, a compliment. Well,
2: hold on here, because the piece I'm writing is about uh, the third one.
1: Oh, the third one. <laughs> I'm
2: just going through a divorce, so... Oh, wow. <gasps> Man, I, I didn't
1: actually, know. Excuse me. <laughs> I wasn't aware. Yeah, it's
2: kind of new. It's kind of new. <laughs> oh,
1: all right. Um, okay. <laughs> well, um, but... It's, it's it's always I mean again it's for different stages of, of your life you know
2: yeah and I think yeah. you have to be willing to you know I sometimes I remember when I was writing that book my husband at the time said like you know if we don't stay together this is going to seem really ironic to say mm-hmm. how great we were together and I was like well it's not about how great we are together it was always sort of the, the minutiae of relationships which is always difficult it wasn't about bad things but it was just conflict
0: mm-hmm. and
2: resolving things so I feel like it's constantly a journey. And mm-hmm. it's funny because I feel, uh, now I listen to my piece because for such a long time, he was like the happy ending to a lot of essays I wrote. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, right when we were breaking up, the mosque ran a story I wrote that sort of ended with, my first marriage ended to put me on the path to this second marriage, which, you know, which was the right person. And so it felt really ironic and weird that that was out in the world right when we were divorcing. <laughs> sometimes. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't mean it was wrong. you know uh-huh. I feel like it was right at the time.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I've been married for a long time, and like for my whole life, practically. And (laughs) it's strange, because I've still had like freedom within that in an odd sort of way. But, um, you know, I always admire the courage of people too, because who, you know, have had more than one, you know, long, meaningful relationship, because um, it means they're open to growth and change. And so it's a kind of thing that, and so you wonder, like, oh, does I mean, I wonder, does that mean I'm not evolving? I mean, I think I'm evolving. <laughs> I mean, I'm changing. But you know, so, for sometimes um, being with one person isn't, you know, your whole life or whatever is isn't, isn't correct if you feel that there's some part of you that's not changing or is not able to pursue its, you know, evolution.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think when it's um, like as long as you're able to grow and change within it and together and in some ways apart and. That can be an amazing thing. And I have so many couples I have such admiration about and for that have lasted a lifetime. But I also feel like this living longer, um, having longer careers, it does sort of push your buttons of are you brave enough to say no to things that don't feel right and to get out of projects that don't feel right. And whether it's powerful or impressive people or whether it's a long marriage that feels hard to entangle it, you know, can you, uh, can you have the strength to have a future that's different, that's unknown. And yeah. I feel like that's been my journey the past, like, couple years or a year. And, um, and it always seems like, you know, it's not like I recommend everybody shake up their lives. It's good. Don't shake it up. But I think there's <laughs> value to if you have that feeling of dread that you should be changing something, that mm-hmm. you not just for feel pressure, but really you're unhappy, beat down, or... And this, I'm talking career-wise, too, because I've gotten out of a couple jobs that I think people would feel, why would you ever leave that? That was such a great position. I finally got it? It's showing me a lot of different mm-hmm. reasons that there's a lot of pressure to stay with things, but every time I've extricated myself, it's been okay. Like, my career's been okay. I've gone on to find other things that I love, and um, I think once you do that a couple times, you get less afraid of change.
1: Right. And sometimes I wonder for people who aren't involved in the arts or specifically aren't involved in storytelling or aren't perhaps actors or something where they're allowed to, you know, these are kind of professions where you're sort of allowed to live many lives and try yeah, on many true. lives so that sometimes I, I wonder like and then I noticed like the high drama like uh, people who have some kind of soap opera lives but they don't have a, a uh-huh. career in the arts and I feel like well if uh-huh. they were artists they would like be more stable in their private life like people you would expect to have like boring lives like sometimes like I like know some academics and then like and they're becoming with me, to me with their soap opera problems and everything. You should just get into the arts and then leave that Because, you know, you think of academics as boring or whatever, instead of being so right. stable. Um, so sometimes, yeah. in the flip side of that, do you feel like sometimes you might have been um, in. Yeah, I know if I wasn't involved in the arts in some way, then I feel like, oh, maybe I would be seeking a diversity of partners or something to have that f- sense of feeling alive, right? Yeah, it's, that's a good point. I
2: wonder. I mean, it might be like who between the chicken or the egg, because I think you have to have a certain disposition to be comfortable with a life as an artist, which is much less stable and is more project to project. I mean, yeah. People have had the same job and career for years and years, and there's such stability and growth, and, uh, you know, but I feel like I just hear, you know, I'm always cobbling together, and especially now that shows don't always last as long. There's not as many long orders for network shows. There's...
1: You had amazing shows with, with amazing longevity, though. That's great.
2: Yeah, I have. had a, I've been around long enough where I've had some, and I loved that. And then you knew what you were coming back to, and you could enjoy your hiatus, you know, time between seasons, because you, you had a job to come back to. You knew the people, you knew the work. Um, but now I feel like every year I'm just cobbling together my year of mm-hmm. what projects am I going to either initiate or be part of, or do and will they go and everybody knows like this and it's this such a strange um, instability that you get a bit used to it. I think so artists, yeah, I think there's the upside of all the diversity and then there's the just sort of comfortable with the risk and change of it all.
1: Mm. Yes. And if I may ask, I don't know if you're speaking about it, but it, and I know you're going to read for us as well a piece, um, it, and and your. Uh, your partner now, is he in the arts or?
2: No, he's, um, it's funny because my last, my husband was a lawyer, poet, chef, I used to call him. and yeah. not a real chef, but he was a good cook. Yeah. Um, this guy also is like a lawyer, poet, but he's a fly fisherman, but he's in a very stable corporate litigation job
0: mm-hmm. and
2: in New York and has two kids and is my age, and he's just very, um, very solid about mm-hmm. who he is and what he's doing and um but also really creative and funny and, and fun but probably i'm um, i don't want to insult my past husband but i'd have to say like more of a man because just kind of taking care of everyone in his life his whole life and mm-hmm. uh and done um, like um cases and it's just interesting to be with someone i don't feel like i have to take care of in any way yeah. because i've often been a breadwinner my, and not that he's flying me around or that I will still continue to work, but I've just always had that pressure mm. of being the main breadwinner and the, um, the main responsible one. And it's, um, and it, even for my parents, because I help take care of them. And, right. Uh, so with an unsure job, even though it's been successful with the job but that you're just constantly trying to figure out what you're doing every year, um, it's, it's a whole, it's just nice to be with somebody you feel like you don't have to take care of it anyways.
1: <laughs> yeah. And how if my, I may I may ask about
2: like
1: emotional Sure, no, that is a a great um gift to have and, and, and a partner. And and may I ask now with the way things are with um you know, uh, shelter in place and everything and he's in New York and you're in Los Angeles. I mean, how does that I'm um, in terms of it's difficult now for being separated, is it? Are you separated at the moment or Yeah,
2: we are yeah I, yeah, I should read this piece. That's a good like, lead into. to this. Oh, okay, yeah,
1: please do. <laughs> I was wondering when you...
2: Okay, so this is an essay. Well, first of all, essays for me, which I think of them as comic essays, first-person pieces, things like the New York Times Modern Love column or mm. Moth Stories. Yeah. Um, both of my books were collections of my essays because it's just easier for me to do sometimes like a bite-size, even when I was writing about dating that book goes from breakup to your next boyfriend, and it was broken them down into just chapters of stages of that process. And my book about marriage and infertility was sort of chapters of different issues that you have when you're married and you're you're trying to have a baby. And I've always um, really enjoyed essay writing because you can just take one topic and really try to chase it down and tell it in a colorful way. And during this shelter-in-place, I have to say, I was so... It, when this started, I've really had trouble writing because I felt like I can do all the executive functioning things that I need to do, but to keep mm-hmm. my house running and my child homeschooled and mm-hmm. scheduling and just everything. But as far as you know, creating from scratch, like the blank yeah. page, I was really having trouble clearing my head enough to do that. So I finally decided, okay, I'm going to write an essay <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, see if I... And it, was, it actually came because a friend of mine who's a TV writer said she was thinking of putting together an anthology of essays of different comedy writers mm-hmm. while they were dealing with it, shelter in place time. Uh-huh. Um, but I, so I wrote it for that. And then she said she was feeling later like, I think I was the only one who wrote one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, <everyone laughs> so I am was to to like, <laughs> 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 So I might try
2: to get it published in in a magazine or a column or something but so you'll be the first to hear it Um, or maybe it will never end up anywhere I don't know okay so this is called um, Love in the Time of COVID-19 the timing's not great what with this pandemic and all but I think I might be in love I mean really in love the kind of love I've written about but I've never truly been sure existed love at first sight kind of love love that feels so right you just know do you hate me I hate me (laughs) I can't even take myself seriously because I'm going through my second divorce as I type it. Clearly I don't have a great track record for identifying a love that lasts. In fact, I haven't had a good relationship since ancient Greece. At least that's what a past lives reader told me when a friend gifted me a phone session during the long stretch between my first and second marriage. I remember thinking, how will this lady be able to read my past lives over the phone as if an in-person past lives reading would be totally accurate and authentic? Still. What did I have to lose other than what's left of my credibility as a logical person? The voice on the other end of the line told me that I have been a woman in almost every lifetime, which she said was unusual, and then she told me that I hadn't had a good relationship since ancient Greece, to which I replied, oh, wow, I knew I was in a slump, but wow. She said I could have kids if I wanted to. Apparently, I've raised a lot of children over the centuries, and I've even had some relatively happy years in Ireland. You know, you've had it rough when the potato famine was the highlight. But my job this time around, she said, was to learn how to love and be loved. My first marriage was to a man who, two years in, realized he was gay. My second, which lasted 14 years, was to a man who didn't have the good manners to realize he was gay or to have an affair. He just fell out of love with me, I think. I'm still not sure what happened, but it happened. Mediators and lawyers were involved, a chocolate lab was involved, a child was involved, the premiere of a movie I directed was involved. I had hopes that he was the culmination of my 3,000-year search for happiness, but now I realize, as we finalize our divorce agreement, he was not the one. But I think maybe this guy I met less than a month ago on a plane is. I want to say that in the smallest font possible. Of course there is no reason to believe this will work out any better. Of course I should feel a tad pessimistic standing here in the aftermath of what I thought was my happily ever after. But it feels different this time. It feels effortless. It just feels so right. I know. I, like most fully grown humans, fully grown humans, have always bristled at those words. Even when uttered by a good friend. And I am a girl's girl. I pride myself on being supportive. Even when I couldn't get pregnant, which shouldn't have been a surprise, I was 40 by the time I finally started trying. I never felt less happy for friends who did get pregnant. I never believed there's just one pie of happiness, and if you get a slice, that's one slice less for me. I believe there's enough for all of us, and any proof that love exists is proof that more of us can and will find it. But those words, you just know, it just feels so right, always made me worry that other people were having a better, more sure-footed love experience than me, or less generously, I saw them as deluded and annoying, holier than thou, happier than thou talked to me in a few years, I would think. But now, with this new relationship, it does feel right. And worse than knowing that those words are potentially triggering, I am aware that they are potentially uninteresting. Who wants to hear about happy people? No film ever started with happy people unless it was a tragedy. The happier people are in the beginning of the film, the worse it's going to be for them. Just watch any based-on-a-true-story adventure movie, like Into Thin Air or A Perfect Storm, and you will see that the first act is everyone's idyllic home life. Everyone's having sex, laughing, playing with the kids, patting the dog, wish I didn't have to go, but it's one last mission, rescue, climb, case, charger, one less goodbye, and then it's you and me in the retirement I can finally enjoy, or dream house we just finished building, or baby we're about to have. And all of this is seen through a gauzy, sun-flared lens, because in 90 minutes, half of these people will freeze or be shot dead or drown. So, I guess it's fitting, and maybe not even surprising, that I finally found happiness on the eve of this horror movie we're all watching and can't turn off. When I met this guy on a plane from New York to L.A., yes, a plane, he was sitting next to me. We were in coach, and I'm not sure what it says about some of my friends, but they find the most unbelievable part of this story, that I met a... Guy and coach? Anyhow, when we met, COVID-19 still seemed to be something mostly happening in China. There were maybe nine cases in the U.S. I do remember I had a slight cough on that flight, and I was getting the evil eye from a few people, So there was a feeling that might it might be coming our way. But as I write this less than a month later, there are 105,000 cases in the United States. When I finish writing this sentence, there will be hundreds more. Tomorrow, that total of cases might double. This piece might be published posthumously. This is par for the course for me, by the way. It's unusual for me to have a high without a low, usually love-related, right on its heels. I won an Emmy without having a plus one. I won both successful at my 10-year high school reunion, knowing that my date, my husband at the time, was gay and we would soon be divorcing. I went to the premiere of the movie I directed with my second husband, having just let me know that he was very unhappy and probably wanted to move out. To be fair, I forced the issue. He was planning to tell me after the premiere, partly out of kindness, partly because he still wanted to go. He felt he'd earned it, living through the experience of trying to get the movie made with me for ten years. I wrote the Sex in the City episode when Carrie is smiling for photos while her heart is breaking because Aiden just broke up with her at Charlotte's wedding. I know that feeling, putting on a smile, dying inside. So I was right at home over the last six months following my separation, going through a flurry of okay Cupid mishaps. A camera operator who turned out to be a Lebanese restaurant delivery guy and Trump supporter. A man who was separated, but apparently his wife didn't know it. A photographer who shoots hotel interiors and fashion, but mostly at holiday inns and head shops. One nice guy who had no job, no couch, and no libido. An Irish filmmaker who recently called to see if he could borrow $3,800. A recently divorced dad who ravaged me by text and then was afraid to get out of his car in real life. A professor whose wife's had A professor whose wife had two strokes during the birth of their second child but when asked how physically limited she was it turned out not very she suffered from short-term memory loss like maybe she couldn't remember why she married this guy (laughs) my best relationship was with a married theater production manager whose wife had a girlfriend i used to think all the good men were married now it seemed like the good men were married but ethically non-monogamous which means the best you can hope for is vice president everyone i met had a giant asterisk next to their name I felt like Mia Farrow in The Purple Rose of Cairo when she said, it's fictional, but you can't have everything. And then I met this lovely man, IRL, which stands for In Real Life, a term I just learned and can't believe we need, because he had the seat next to me on a plane, and we watched the same movie, Ford vs. Ferrari, and I rested my arm ever so gently against his during the second movie we both watched, Pain and Glory, and he didn't move his arm away, and he paused his movie while I went to the bathroom, and then just before landing, we finally talked, and he said he was visiting his son for the weekend, and he was divorced with two daughters in New York. So I very inelegantly blowed it out. I lived in the same house I bought when I was single, and then I was married and had a kid, and I still live there beyond force. And then, emboldened by all the asterisk men I dated, OK Cupid, he served a purpose after all, I wrote my number on a slip of paper for the next time he was in town, since it sounded like he had a very full weekend already. He texted that night, and that next night, he came to pick me up for dinner, but we never had dinner or left my house. I can confidently say it was the best sex I ever had, because it was the best sex I ever had, and the most sex I ever had in a night, and the most exciting and fun sex, because I really liked this guy. And bonus, he did not, as the Lebanese restaurant delivery guy, who wasn't really a cameraman did, say during sex, are you my little bitch? To which I believe I responded, um, sure. He didn't say anything that took me out of the moment. And there were no asterisks, no other shoes dropping. Everything he said just made me like him more. And our second date was a full weekend of him visiting where we got along as well or better than the first weekend. He's so short-footed. He's crazy about me. He's not afraid to say it. And that first date, after that first date, I broke up with men who didn't even know they were dating me. After the second date, I got off okay, keep it completely. And now we're all on lockdown. I somehow committed to being monogamous with the one man I can't sleep with. We are in two of the cities that are most hard hit by this virus. We're distance learning, me with my 9-year-old daughter in Los Angeles and with his 11-year-old daughter in New York. What I wouldn't give to be six feet away from them, getting on a plane feels to us and our respective exes like playing Russian roulette with a lot of us. And I have to admit, the long and lonely voluntary solitary confinement of COVID-19 has made me face all the feelings I've been trying to outrun regarding this divorce, the disappointment, grief, failure, and loss. I never realized how much I liked coming home to someone. With a child during these uncertain times, you have to put on a brave face. But when my daughter leaves to stay at her father's, I realize I don't feel brave at all. Like this worldwide health crisis, I don't know how or when this story ends. It's hard to think about forever when you know love might not last. And yet, I am thinking about forever again. We talk about the trips we want to take, the bucket list items we want to check off together. On my list are four things. Survive the pandemic. Stay overnight in the ice hotel, see
1: the northern lights, learn how to love and be loved. Well, that's that's beautiful, and wow, um, oh, I think it's a, a lovely love letter to love and new love, and um, and uh, so I I wish you both the 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 best, and, and to think of this kind of thing that we're all going through as a kind of. Um, uh, courtship, period, for courtship. Um, yeah. Well, it has
2: forced us to talk more than I probably would ever talk to someone I'm just starting a relationship with. You yeah. text and watch movies together remotely, and yeah, it's kind yeah. of forcing you to yeah, get to know the- people in a different way.
0: Hi, my name is Dalia Haddad. I'm a student at the George Washington University and the associate interview producer on this podcast. In the piece that Cindy just shared, she touches on the notion of having to sit with the feelings that we can no longer outrun during the quarantine of this pandemic. And afterwards, Mia says the story serves as a love letter to love. While I think both of these statements are true, I find one facet of it all particularly of interest. When people talk about love, especially after they feel like they've found it, like Cindy has, it's often accompanied with, I just had to open myself up, it fell right right in my lap. Cindy says, though, yes, this instance was by chance, but she also talks about how much they communicate now, which is work. Relationships are always work, good, fulfilling, and regenerative work, but work nonetheless. What I liked about Cindy's sharing of love is that she didn't have to go on some dramatic search for herself and change who she was in order to be open for love. She didn't have to also categorically give up on looking for it and wait for a prince to show up. She was going on dates. She had been in love before. She just had to be open in that moment. But it also shows that sometimes relationships are out of our control. And on that topic, I wanted to share one of my relationships, in this case, a friendship that similarly started just because we ended up sitting next to each other. I was a junior in high school and I had just been cast in a somewhat tertiary role in our school musical. So peak cool kid activity all the way. (laughs) Similarly, in a smaller but emotionally similar way that Sydney shared, that she had celebrated premieres and Emmys while mixed in very trying romantic moments, so much of high school is the various aspects of your life running highs and lows and never in sync. But in that moment, it was our first music rehearsal, and I was chit-chatting, talking with everyone, bounding around, and on the inside I was also terrified. I was terrified to sing in front of everybody, but I also knew that I didn't have to. This was a group rehearsal why would i some random character who has one song that will not be on the slate for today have to sing in front of this room of 50 people what i didn't know is that the song we were preparing had a very brief potentially nine word solo for my character and when we got to that point in the song i froze the music director looked at me and expected something to come out of my mouth and my previously joyous self sat completely frozen and started to cry. People consoled me, we moved past it. The whole thing was probably just a blimp in the life of someone else, but it carried with me for at least the rest of that day and potentially into that week. So afterwards, I had parked in the far parking lot and I needed a ride over, and so I searched for who I thought would be the least confrontational and potentially most shy member of this cast who would take me and not think twice about it. That being said, I asked this girl Avery for a ride to the other parking lot, and we got along like a house on fire. Why Cindy's story resonated with me in this moment was because while we got along right away, we also mutually invested in this friendship, and happenstance only gets you in the door. But... For any type of relationship, friendship or romantic. The sitting and facing the feelings that you can no longer run away from part, the distance learning with a young child part, the talking from across the country or going to different colleges part, all mandates a certain investment between her career and her personal life, and even her willingness to open up about that. I think this episode serves as an opportunity to showcase the depth of life and feeling and relationship that are unlocked when you know yourself, but you're also willing to get to know more about yourself, and when you understand how much you want to commit to something, and just how far that can take you
1: to talk of the seriousness of what we're going through and I think that was very and I also want to say I think it's it, it's great how you manage and it's kind of like a signature of yours to be you know moving and funny and vulnerable and strong and so um, I think it's uh, it's great that you can bring that into it too you know. <laughs> Thank you. um on brand yeah on brand but i mean to talk about <laughs> the seriousness of what we're going through is as well i mean what if you if it has a, if there's a silver lining anywhere i guess it's made us all value you know things like you know human connection and community and touch and yeah. i have
2: had so many i have you know female friendships are a huge part of what i write about and what motivates me and what keeps me sane and centered, and I have so many groups of female friends, like from high school, and then from Olivia's preschool, mm-hmm. or current school, my friends who live in Texas City with me, other TV writers that I go wine tasting with, this group of and I want well, to get away with, that we've just all become close, so each of these pods, we've been doing like Zoom calls, and mm-hmm. it's impossible to schedule things with these. People like my high school friends were all far-flung, all over the world,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and to be able to do these Zoom calls with friends and all be in the same place at the same time and hear how everyone's coping and doing and mm-hmm. how the kids are doing and what disappointments everyone had to deal with and what's shutting down and he's sick and well and um, it's really made me just appreciate. Especially those women and just the support. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know too many men who are doing much of that or any of that. <laughs> yeah. and I feel like I don't know how I would be surviving way.
1: Well, it just shows, um, and 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 then I'm sure inside the the men who aren't doing that are are missing it. But it just shows the the added importance, I guess, what it is for for women and community of friends and things. I think we all need yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it'll be something that we'll be getting over. You know, this kind of missing like touch and proximity and things like that.
2: Yeah, because it doesn't replace <clears throat> doesn't replace that. It's really, if I didn't have, you know, I have a friend who's a single mom mm-hmm. who's so, a young kid, a young girl she had on mm-hmm. her own, she's so nervous if she gets sick,
0: what mm-hmm. happens
2: to her daughter that she's just really hunkered down. And then I have friends who are single, really mm-hmm. isolated. Um, married couples who are at each other's throats. <laughs> like, it's really affecting everyone differently and stretching everyone to the limits and making you really realize what you might have taken for granted as far as social interaction and support and just the ability to move around however we wanted and not worry. So, yeah, it's really going to change. And yeah. Not to mention just how hard hit. Hard hit. <clears throat> like, economically and in every
1: other way everyone I, I mean I somehow somehow I don't want to think about it too much I just want to make sure we can get and you know, it'd be great if we could like all hibernate for a year <laughs> and then it was like over right <laughs> that's like my dream you know so hibernation well, does feel you know? like
2: that's almost what we're doing because we, yeah I mean we don't get to sleep through it all but we yeah. are hunkering down in our cave is kind of trying to just wait this out
0: yeah
1: is something for that. I'd, I don't know. I don't... I want to... I, I'm interested to know... I know that that's great. So it's great to hear that there are already, you know, collections of essays that people are... Like comedic essays that you can be thinking like so far into bringing the comedy in. Um, But I'm interested to know well, what know. art... I don't
2: know. I, given that I was the
0: only one who
1: wrote it, I don't know. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> able to smile about it yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it'd be interesting to know how the dramas that they that come out of it, you know, how is that? You know, it's weird to think because they're children, like, there's infants now being born into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. just their sense of of what's normal, right?
2: You know, just for them, I don't, they don't understand how historic this is, how completely out of the ordinary this is, and like, once in a lifetime it's that, and hopefully never again, that this sort of thing has happened, that these sort of and places of heaven. So I know it's, it'll be interesting. I know for me, it's really made me question what do I want to be writing and saying right now. And you know, I don't just want to be. I think a lot of writing will come out of this sort of post-pandemic that reflects it more <clears throat> literally. But I've been revisiting a lot of the movies that were the reason I got into in the first place. Yeah, that are really good-hearted and uplifting, and not you know, Ernest or anything, but like Defending Your Life, or Purple Rose of Cairo that I just quoted, I just watched that again yeah. last night, which actually took place during the Depression and is just, a, it's a love letter to film and entertainment mm. during hard times. It's really beautiful and it holds up completely. And then, The Real Girl is one that is just a really good-hearted story of community and family and I just loved Waking That Divine, which I've always loved which is really just to be community. I think I'm really looking to write and watch things that are <clears throat> sort of reassuring about a community and people and coming together and love and, you know, a little bit of um, just you know, sort of life performing.
1: That's what I feel like I want to do coming. Through. Yeah, I mean, I think that going back on your other work, there is a life-affirming sense too, or that you'll get if there's a there's a problem, you'll get through it, or you'll get through it with friends. Um, but yeah, I think that the hunger for that will be even greater, um, and. uh Actually, yeah, I just interviewed John Benjamin Hickey, and he was just about to direct someone you've worked a lot with, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and uh, Matthew Broderick, and then the, you know, this big comedy, ah. but everything was, yeah, the, his di- directorial debut, or his uh, it was the second directorial debut, but his main one on Broadway, you know, that everything was closed, and so we were talking about oh, what's going to happen oh, yeah. when... Um, you know, there'll be a hunger was it a, for this.
2: Just
1: a show, yeah, it Was a Broadway show? Yeah, uh, it was a Broadway show, Neil Simon at the Plaza Suite. And um, they'd wow. shown it in Boston. But anyway, we were just talking about it, and I said, oh, we'll be even hungri- hungrier for this kind of these comedies <laughs> when we come out of it, mm-hmm. or things that, you know, bring us together and we can gather together. So um, it's it's no, it's nice to be reminded what we really value. Um and it's nice that, uh, because sometimes, I think, maybe, I don't know, because sometimes writers have told me, or like if it's any kind of discipline, when you're doing something a long time, um, you get good at it, but sometimes you can't, you know, why are you doing this? So sometimes when some, something kind of horrible happens to us all, it kind of like, oh, this is what, yeah, this is what's important. It's about love. It's about community. Um, right. I want to talk about... I also yeah.
2: kind of pushed Go. myself to... I feel like as soon as I get comfortable with something or feel like I've learned the tricks, I want to do something that pushes me and then I almost always feel like, why did I do that? I was really good at this kind of writing. Why am I now trying to do drama or I mean, I wrote an episode of Better Things, which was really fun. It was when it was first starting, but Louis C.K. Mm -hmm. likes to write. um, That was when he was still with the show in the beginning when they were developing it, but he doesn't like to break story in the same way. He just likes to think of funny scenes and kind of string them together and sort of hates when you leave the breadcrumbs of the story and so it was having to unlearn so much and I feel like I've done that in several shows now and Mm -hmm. experiences and I it's always this uncomfortable like why did I do this but I'm just I kind of am enjoying doing things I'm a little scared of like directing was the same way Mm -hmm. just as I get older and as I've done this longer I feel like might as well keep stretching.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious as well about comedy. So you say that was, that's Louis C.K.'s approach, and then what was it like, like the different writers' rooms you've been in, and how, I mean, I don't know how big the, the groups were. I mean, I know you write individual episodes, but you're, you're all talking. I mean, could you just talk about that a little, because people don't know very much about that.
0: Um,
2: yeah, I mean, every writers' room has a different personality, but I've, you know, I've now been in a lot of them. And, uh, I mean, Everybody Loves Raymond was one of the, best and most fun uh, writers' rooms because Phil Rosenthal, who ran it, he had a philosophy of, you know, hire nice people. Everybody mm-hmm. be nice. It was a very, um, it was mostly guys, and mm-hmm. I was one of the few girls, but that it didn't seem to affect anything. They were just really nice guys, and it was a fun room, and mostly we just worked from life. So mm-hmm. Phil came out of the Norman Lear School of Real Stories, Norman Lear, who did like Maud and all of yeah. the family. Um, you know, real stories of what's happening in your family, sibling rivalry, marriage problems, problems with your parents, we would come in and talk about those stories and then figure out how to make those episodes. So it was, you know, a bunch of writers sitting around the table brainstorming things, and then you, you know, start breaking one story, and or sometimes in the beginning you break the arc of the season for each character, and then you start working more kind of granularly. And then... You decided writer is going to write that episode, and then, you know, with the benefit of everybody's great minds jokes that came out of the discussion of that episode, you go mm-hmm. off and write the outline, then you go off and write the script, and then sometimes the room will do like a polish of the script or a whole rewrite of the script before the actors get it, and then you keep refining mm-hmm. it once the actors get it. So I had the experience of doing that sort of show that was in front of a live audience, and you mm-hmm. sort of had these days of rehearsals where you saw it on its feet, and then you did it in front of a live audience jokes. And then Sex in the City was the first show I did that was sounded more like a movie, not, no live audience and mm-hmm. um, no commercials, no act race. So, And that was um, cable versus network, so you didn't have to worry about offending people or even talking about issues like abortion or the language
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. with sex. Um, and that was just a small writer's room when I joined. It was just me and Jenny Vicks, Michael Patrick King and Darren Starr breaking... I joined... In the middle of the second season i freelanced one and then went so that was a great room because that was really kind of grown up i mean grown up in the way that there wasn't a lot of network interference and hbo at that time when they were doing sopranos and just starting to curb after that they were really just going by what they thought was good and you just want to go deeper and dig deeper and more complicated um they just gave us a lot of freedom so you had to use your own you had to be really responsible for making it as good as you could. But there was some sort of safety net on a lot of those other shows I had done. Even though you always tried to write your best script, you knew that it was going to go through a process where everybody was going to probably pitch new jokes and add jokes.
1: and mm-hmm. The
2: actors were going to add jokes, and you had lots of days to see it. But this was like, you better just write the best script you can and make it... As good as you can, because there may be some rewriting you do, but it's gonna go get filmed. <laughs> so, um, that was actually really good to learn to be that responsible and just trust and hear in your head that it was gonna work for those characters.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then since then, I've done like a lot of, I mean, a lot of different kinds of rooms. Where, but typically you have just the benefit of a great group of writers who are, I mean, on Modern Family it was a pretty big room. In fact, there were two rooms because there was Chris Lloyd and Steve Levitan, and they. Uh, they, they weren't getting along, really, <laughs> because they had two separate rooms, and you okay. would be in one or the other, and that was a tougher place because uh, you kind of had to walk on eggshells there, and especially women. There's a book coming out, The Oral History of Modern Family, and actually me and some of the other women who worked on the show talk a little bit about why, just why, trying to interrogate why it was a tough place for women and just lessons we learned what kind of world we wanted to be. Teacher, but what I feel like I've learned from the many rooms I've been in, and especially for comedy, is it just has to be a safe, trusting, respectful, and loving place. Not meaning there can't be bad language, people can't tease each other. I don't mean safe like in a Nietzsche sort of way or Mm -hmm. even in a yeah, in any sort of political way. I mean just like these have to feel like your best friends or at least people you find funny and admire that can say really stupid ideas, and maybe those stupid ideas will turn into good ideas, and you have to go tell your personal stories and know that people are not going to judge you, and they're going to be patient to listen to them and understand how it might become a story that you don't maybe yet know how it will become a story for the show. <laughs> but uh, it takes a lot of trust. It's like a giant trust ball, and it has to be the right mix of writers and personalities to make everybody feel kind of safe and at their best.
1: Yeah, I that's I I find it. I'm really curious. I mean, I I hear about it and things, but I, I would just love to know what that's like. And then then add to that like the time the pressure, the adrenaline, and and you know, all <laughs> all the, all yeah. the deadlines <laughs> how that works. You mean we're on
2: Raymond? Like we were doing 1922 or 24 episodes a year. So you'd have this period of pre-production where you kind of had the oncoming train of knowing you were going to start. Eventually, filming mm-hmm. and you needed to be really organized. You try to get as many scripts done beforehand as possible. But so you're sort of always balancing breaking new stories, working on the stories that you've done, writing them. Modern Family had a good system in that you'd write the script and then kind of bank it and not worry about the next draft of it and the polishing of it until it was almost time for that script to film. Mm-hmm. So you weren't constantly juggling the thousand different drafts and different stages of scripts sort of like Uh get it done put it on hold until we're ready to deal with that one and then we'll we'll work Mm -hmm. on revising that one that was a smart system Um, and yeah it's a lot of pressure I mean every once in a while you'd be under the gun and have to write a script really quickly or even sometimes group write scripts divide up Mm scenes if it wasn't working or at the network particularly there's a lot more usually interference and scripts getting thrown out and outlines getting thrown out and that can just completely throw you for a loop, <laughs> but um, I think there's starting to be a bit more of an atmosphere of creativity and trust and varied voices and just room, maybe just volume, that there's not room to micromanage that way. So now with the streamers, there's a bit more luxury. And now more often, I mean, it's so changing as we speak, but there's oftentimes a room will write the scripts before they start filming, write all the scripts and maybe not even film the pilot first. So. That is kind of a luxury because you just have time to focus on the writing and not mm-hmm. worry about we're going to start filming and we're going to start casting and we're going to run out of time and everybody's going to be needed in a thousand places and not here in the writer's room. And so you, there's, there's yeah. that too.
1: And you mentioned HBO and Curb Your Enthusiasm briefly there. Have you uh, worked for people who are more improvisatorial actors? I mean, who I, mean, are you, or, uh, I don't know your whole, uh, there may be some projects mm-hmm. I'm not aware of. Well, I tried to
2: do that on my film set, really, like, leave yeah. room for that. And we actually, we did the tape. I had some of the actors, like, I, one of the sons, he, Patricia Arquette's son, was played um, by Jake Hoffman, who's actually Dustin Hoffman's son, and he's such a good actor. Oh, yeah. And he came and read with all the girls who were either going to play, there's one scene where he has a really bad date, and mm-hmm. then also there were some scenes with his girlfriend. Uh-huh. So he read with all those actresses, so he sort of saw the scene on his feet not on the speed, but you could hear it. Mm-hmm. Hear if it was working. In half the time, you feel like it's not working until the right actor comes in, and then it makes it work.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but after the table read, which was when all the actors read the script together for the first time, we spent a few days in LA uh, rehearsing with just the three women, and then with the mothers and sons. And mm-hmm. we did a lot of reading what was there, but then also just letting them kind of riff and um, seeing if this felt right to them, and changing lines based on those riffs. Mr. Charquette and Jake Hoffman at one point did like their whole scene without looking at the script, just what they remembered, what was important, and there was a lot of improvising that I loved. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I like had it all on my iPhone, mm-hmm. just recorded, and then I typed it up, and then figured out what I wanted to use of that. So mm-hmm. there was improvising sometimes um, in getting to the final draft of the script, but then even mm-hmm. on set, they would we would play around a bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, I know on modern family Ty Burrell he's one of the best
0: uh-huh. I
2: mean he's just so funny so he could do takes a lot of different ways and there's one scene there was an episode I wrote where Claire is running for office
1: oh yes I remember that season. and that's also was nominated <laughs> or one sorry, yes I was just looking at that
2: <laughs> I think that was I think that was little Bo bleep oh, okay. where um, Lily was bridesmaid but so Claire was running for office and her and some little paper says she's unlikable. Mm-hmm. And so her family is trying to coach her for this debate. And it's all the kids on the couch. And then Ty, and they're trying to, like, throw things at her that will throw her. Mm-hmm. And even though we had written a lot, mm-hmm. Ty just started making up things. Like, he did a helicopter sound. And she was like, what's that? He's like, could be a helicopter going by. <laughs> he just was throwing out all sorts of things uh-huh. that were so funny. And he was doing it just off the cuff, he always was like that. So uh, that was so fun, and a lot of what he did ended up getting in there. So I love being on sets when actors can do that, but mm-hmm. um, it's not always, not every actor can do that, so it sort of depends if if, if people can roll with it.
1: Well, it's, ni- it's nice, it's like, well, you uh, writers are working under pressure, and it's nice. I, th- I think it's if, if, if an actor is, is confident in that, I think it adds this extra... Know for simitude, that that's like oh you're you're saying it as though you would say it because <laughs> you'd, you'd think yeah. you you have to think on their feet so I love
2: that I mean I know if you listen to like Judd Apatow's uh, oh, commentary yeah. on Forty Year Old Virgin mm-hmm. they basically just I think rift, like had sort of an outline that just riffed a lot on. On in every scene and I, I remember he said on there that the crew was surprised what a cohesive and good movie it turned out to be because it, they just were all laughing and having fun but nobody really understood it was all going to come together into a movie that made any sense or definitely, certainly had heart <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but so yeah, I mean some people are great at that and if you put together a bunch of great comic actors uh, mm-hmm. then you can do that but i am come out of more of a uh, I guess more of a scripted discipline but sure. I'm not against it for sure
1: no, it's interesting. And it's interesting to think of the ways in which it's like a controlled improvisation anyway. I'm sure with those deadlines and everything, it's uh, the way things fall together. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, the, the, next, it's yeah. the next closest thing to improvisation. Um, <laughs> as I really admire it. Can't, I can't imagine. I know one um, of my friends is a showrunner. And like he says, he works 100 hours um, a week. Like... Uh, Gosh, I don't I don't know the, the yeah. stamina involved in that and having to think because that wants every member of the crew. <laughs> I mean,
2: I have to say that I may be one of the writers. I don't know if this is good to admit for women in general, but yeah. I realized at a certain point I wasn't sure I liked running the show versus just being like a great second in command and Mm. servicing, being like a really reliable foot soldier, having Mm. all the fun of doing every aspect of it, but not having to go home at night and still be wondering if I made all the right decisions. Because I find that part almost debilitating. So Mm. now with shorter orders and cable shows and streaming shows where it's like six episodes or eight episodes, I think it would be a different thing. But in my short experience of the network shows I tried to run, I found mm. that to be really an incredible amount of pressure that is not for everybody. And mm. it's freeing for me and I think good for my career to just say, you know what, I don't have to want that even though most men in this business and maybe most really ambitious women in this business want to run their own shows and make mm. their own stamp. and. Like, I get the appeal of that, but it's not the only way to have a career. And I've really gotten to work on some great shows that I didn't create, but that I contributed a lot to mm-hmm. just being okay, like not having to be my show. <laughs> yeah. And I think I enjoyed it more because...
1: Yeah, it's, I can imagine there's a nice freedom to, to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's Love Bites that was at NBC. It almost seems like an impossible job description because like, you have to be like a great manager and you have to yes. be a writer and you know, all the... to work the yes, budgets. Mitch Hurwitz,
2: <laughs> yes, Mitch Hurwitz, who, um, he created Arrested Development. He uh-huh. came and visited me once on one of the early shows I created, which was called Madigan Men mm-hmm. with Gabriel Byrne and mm-hmm. Roy Trees. Oh, right. And um, he said to me, you know, running a show is like, it's like everything you did as a writer, but you're also supposed to manage a Seven Eleven, which is a convenience store, like a 24-hour convenience store, and no one told you how to work it or where the keys are or how to work the slurping machine, and
0: yeah. you never
2: wanted to run a Seven Eleven, but now you're supposed to do that on top of everything else you've learned how to do. Uh-huh. Um, and it really feels like that. It's like suddenly there's this whole other job on top of your job that... Uh-huh. Nobody really said we were suited for. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. and I don't think there's any <laughs> the real school big, for it, really, for showrunners. No,
2: no. Yeah, and it's—it is such a difference being one of the people working on scripts. No matter, even if you're working terribly late hours, mm. you're still able to go home and be exhausted but you can go home but if you're running the show and you kept your staff there working really late to rewrite a script you're thinking when you go home did we make it better do we make it worse what's the network going to say tomorrow what are the actors going to say tomorrow are they going to like this or are they not or we going to have to start over like do i know what i'm doing did i edit the episode like there's such a different dialogue in your head at least for me <laughs> when i'm in charge versus when i'm just helping that yeah. um is a whole different thing
1: Yeah, and you wonder um, to what level you can write to. I mean, it's like some people thrive on anxiety or whatever, but you wonder to what level because you can be like uh, creatively free when you're having to think about these other things, I imagine.
2: Well, also, I guess if you're okay with it being your whole life, Uh you have room for that. I mean, I have to say in some ways for men who have wives at home who take care of their kids or I guess for women who have husbands who are stay-at-home dads or just if you don't have kids and you're single and you are able to have that be your life, it's easier than if you're trying to juggle anything else.
1: I do want to speak about, and we're coming in, we're now the, the... um, Hundred, it's a centenary of women's suffrage, and we've, and you're in a com- very competitive business anyway. But also, you're a woman in that business, and looking back, um, and, um, you know how how women are are being accepted in these roles as showrunners or as you know writers and things. But you know how it's changed since you've been been writing for television. Yeah,
2: there's definitely a an awareness, thanks to a lot of efforts that some I've been a part of and some I've benefited from, of um, just making studios aware how few films and TV shows were held by women, how few female directors get the chance and get a second chance, and um, and it's going to take a lot of unlearning, and even with our film, and we had the goal of trying to hire a lot of female department heads. You're comparing resumes of maybe composers, say, There's so many more male composers, and they've had the breadth of experience and worked on some award-winning movies And you know, as a first-time female director, even then you can feel pressured to, well, maybe I should go with someone who's had a lot more experience because I don't, and they've done these films I love, and then there would be female composers who maybe were a little bit ghettoized in just the small, more romantic movies, and they do that really well, and they've made a big living doing it, but that's not exactly the sound you wanted you know Mm -hmm. so there's so many things that go into you have to my um, producer she's come up with a system where when she's comparing say directors or composers or whatever she challenges her staff not to present her with their resume but to present her with like the few piece samples of their work whether it's actually produced or not that seem right for that project Mm -hmm. and then she'll just compare that work and um, you almost have to un unlearn the way we normally hire to try to um make it a little more even playing field but that said there's such a push right now for i mean i'm sure you've i don't know if you've heard but there's a lot of like white male complaining that now it's really hard for them to get jobs as character actors or showrunners or um directors because there's such a push right now to try to even that score and hire more females and um Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, to me, the difference of you as a woman feeling like you have to sort of kick the door down versus mm-hmm. now people are holding the door open and kind of inviting you in and you can step through that door and then you still have to prove yourself to stay in that room. But at least you're not, you know, feeling like you're you're not welcome. There's actually pressure to hire. Mm-hmm. And so if you're one of those people who is talented and especially right now, I think for minority or um, marginalized voices it's a really good time because there's so much room and so much more diversity that everyone's looking for. I yeah. mean a big difference too is just broadcast versus narrow casting because it used to be there were three networks and they were all programming to the same seemed like 18 to whatever year old men <laughs> and maybe some women but that was you were trying to find a broad audience and now you can look on Netflix and there's shows from all over the world and they're kind of happy if your show just captures an audience they hadn't captured. Mm -hmm. So they're actually looking for diverse voices and new voices and new stories. And that's a whole different thing. And I think women are, you know, we're good storytellers anyway, but there's just a much more openness now to um, make room. And then there's, of course, women who do great, like women did The Matrix, directed The Matrix or Her Locker, or it's not to say that women can only do more character, I think it's also going to take an opening up of realizing women could do any kind of directing in any kind of movie, not just women-centric movies. Yeah.
1: No, I really I'm really looking forward to the stories that come out. I mean I've so enjoyed it now, but yes, it's great that there's now you know, more acceptance. Yeah, I'm,
2: like no, fleabag. It was like exactly yeah, the right exactly. time for fleabag, which was so good. Like no man could have made that show. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just an it's amazing well, yeah. show and it really captured everybody, you know? It was so yeah, I feel like there's good news is that we haven't gotten as much of a chance to do so much, so there's still a lot of new territory for women.
1: No, I, I, I love those kind of you know original takes that we're seeing, and and I look I look forward also to your you know new projects forthcoming and um, the uh, of course I love your signature you know comedy and tenderness and friendships but. I like, I like to see you know what where, what other directions you take us with this. Yeah, I'm
2: sure I'll put myself in the position to do something I have no business doing. So you'll you can look forward to my next action movie or something. <laughs> <laughs> i feel completely in over my head and hopefully I'll come out okay.
1: <laughs> yes, and there was a, that's a very beautiful um, essay that that you shared as well. I think it's you know very brave and also this yes that we need we need love stories in these times. It's something and. Right. We need to be reminded of that. Oh, thank
2: you. Well, let's just agree now whether that love story works out or not, it's still going to be valid.
1: <laughs> it is. We all, I mean, Hopefully yes. Hopefully it will. Yes. But um, I do want to, you know, just finishing up here because um, it's an educational initiative. And you've been speaking a lot, you know, the future of, you know, women in the arts. and But just thinking about, you know, education and even what's going on now with the. Um, this global health crisis and and the environment and all these things and as we reflect on the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what do you feel are some ways we might, you know, improve our current systems so that we might build a better tomorrow? Sorry to like segue into that so quickly.
2: (laughs) Well, I would just say I think the arts will just continue to be a mechanism for expression and healing no matter Mm -hmm. what we go through. I mean, to me, The arts remind us of our common humanity, and there are certain human experiences that we all have, regardless of race or gender or sexuality or nationality or political affiliations, in experiences like friendship and family and love and heartbreak and birth and death and illness and loss. And I feel art can help us find common ground as humans, and that right now, I mean, never have we been more interconnected, but I think it's important to remember as some politicians use this to blame other countries or ethnicities or states or borders that, you know, we're all just so interconnected by these human experiences. And to me, the arts can also provide relief that you're not alone in what you're experiencing or feeling and help us find, like, the words or images for things that have previously been unspoken or unexpressed and make us laugh at ourselves or force us to examine our prejudices. And I think sometimes the arts just chip away at our prejudices because a character who was once foreign, like literally or figuratively, Mm -hmm. becomes known to us. Mm -hmm. And a person or lifestyle or even political persuasion we might not have otherwise encountered, you know, becomes familiar and less foreign through TV or film or literature or art. And we're able to get close and walk in their shoes and see what is lovable and relatable and human and someone we might not have otherwise understood. So I feel like art is key to overcoming our prejudices and remembering how interconnected we are.
1: Well, I think that's beautifully said. And, and particularly in this period now, the arts are the way we're communicating with each other and reminding ourselves as you know, what, what normal was, was like um so, yeah we need them more than ever well thank you cindy Schupack, for your for sharing this and your stories about relationships and friendship and smart funny strong vulnerable women full of heart empathy and openness thank you for adding your voice to the creative process
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Dahlia Haddad. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at